Guilt is holding yourself accountable. That's a good thing. And, and higher levels of guilt are actually associated with better leadership. Hey everyone, it is Angie Wachowski. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of Spark, Bet on You, and Leading from the Front, I learned everything I know about leadership. From this foundational experience, I had service in the United States Marine Corps, and it was a wonderful privilege. And I am so excited about being the host of the Bet on You podcast, because I get to talk to the most interesting fascinating people and share their expertise with you. We're all on this risk-taking journey together. And this season, season four of the Bet On You podcast, we are about the three C's of risk-taking, getting clear, getting confident, and getting courageous. I really want you to do big, bold things in your life. The things that I know you know you're capable of, but perhaps feel a little scared to do. And you should feel scared. It's a big thing. It represents a behavioral change. It represents a new direction, a step on a new path. But our fears shouldn't paralyze us. And I know one of the biggest fears we all have is our fear of failure. We don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to stumble. But I bet if I were to ask you, what have you learned more from in life? Your failures or your successes? you'd probably say, I've learned more from the mistakes, the missteps, the unfortunate things that happened than any prize or award or trophy that I've won. Now, the message isn't go out there and fail. (laughs) Go out there and be irresponsible with your time, with your money, with your effort, with your action. That's not the message. My message is, Go out there, baby step your way to success, recognize you're going to stumble. And when you do, it is okay because you can pull yourself back up again. So getting comfortable just with our imperfections and the risk of failure is really important, which is why I invited one of the world's experts on leadership to this conversation to talk specifically about failure. And he will be the first to tell you that on his journey to success, he has failed and he's learned from it because he was accountable and he had a healthy level of guilt about the experience. And he used that to drive himself. And the guest I have today is retired army general, Tom Kolditz, who has taught as a professor. He's also a PhD. I mean, this guy has so many titles. It's ridiculous. He has a PhD. He taught at West Point. He taught leadership at Yale. He stood up at the Dewar Institute at Rice University. I mean, my goodness. And he's still today continuing his effort to build, grow, develop leaders in every industry and every sector. So I'm excited. Tom Kolditz, a person I put on a pedestal. I know we're not supposed to put people on pedestals, but he is here with us today to help us learn how to learn from failure and use that as a fuel for our success. I'm going to say that you've been a mentor and hero of mine for so long. I We met about a decade ago working on a project and I follow you and I listen to you on YouTube when I can get access to your material. You're just, the work that you're doing is so important. So what a treat to have you as a guest today. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, you know, it's funny, I kind of follow you too. So uh, it's uh, it's been a great association. You know, you do very good work in leadership and leader development. And um, so I'm, I'm always happy to see you. 
Oh, well, great. And you are by far in this leadership development space, one of the most successful people I know. So it naturally only just goes to show that we're going to talk about failure today, because I know that that's a topic that you know a lot about. And I'm sure you'd be one of the first people to say is that you can't have all the success without experiencing failure too. And that's been a huge topic. That's true. I've got a lot of experience at it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I know one of your key cornerstone courses throughout your career teaching folks is how to deal with failure. Can you talk about why and how that topic came into your forefront, developed so much content around failure? You know, I I think it happened when I was teaching at the Yale School of Management. Mm -hmm. And I began to realize that I'd walk into these classrooms and there'd be 90 MBA candidates in there and none of them had ever failed at anything in their lives. And you would think that that would be a good thing. But in reality, they were a bunch of scared puppies. I mean, they were really, you know, concerned about how things were going to go in their internships and their first jobs. And, you know, their level of fear of failure, uh, both measured by, uh, you know, fear of failure assessments, but also just in a practical sense, was very high. And so it became a topic that I thought I needed to learn more about and that we needed to uh, talk about. And that has continued through other teaching that I've done. And now I'm primarily a leadership coach. And uh, I've talked about that with every single client that I've coached over the past five years. Why are we so afraid of failing? Well, it may surprise you that I'm going to say this. it's because failure's bad. You know, a, a lot of people have sort of a, you know, this sort of contradictory notion that, you know, it's important to fail. We, you know, we need to fail. Look, failure is painful. It sets us back from our goals. Mm-hmm. It's not something that we want to do. But on the other hand, we have to come to grips with the fact that if we're in the game, we're going to fail, you know, every now and then, hopefully we don't fail the same way twice, but we're going to fail. And it's an experience that everyone's going to have. Uh, And I think one of the most important ideas or notions is that just because we fail and just because it's bad, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to derail our career or cause major problems for us. That's the fear that people really have is that they're going to make some kind of blunder and it's over for them. And that's really very seldom that that's the case. And I imagine when I think about our audience who focuses on attempting to take risks on themselves, that very fear of failure is what keeps them from not starting, from not moving, for not progressing. And so how do you deal with that emotion of just that fear of if I do this and, you know, our mind's going to think worst case scenario, how do you, how do you manage that? Because we need to, right? We need to push ourselves out there, at least tempt failure, hopefully not fail, but tempt failure. Sure. So I was actually, I was talking to a coaching client yesterday about this and we were discussing defensive pessimism. Hmm. So all of us as leaders have to be willing to move forward and take reasonable risks 
but at the same time, be defensively pessimistic and recognize that things might not turn out the way we want them to. And in doing that, we can protect ourselves, but still move forward because what we're doing is we're, we're accepting the possibility of a failure, controlling the outcome of that failure as best we can, but not letting it, not letting it stop us. And often when we have multiple courses of action, it seems like there could be dozens of problems and, you know, uh, that the choices are all really complex, but there's really only two things that we need to focus on in making those kinds of decisions. First of all, what is the most likely outcome? So we have to plan for that if we're, if we're trying to achieve something, but we also have to plan for the most dangerous outcome. What's the worst thing that can happen? And if we, and if we set ourselves up with realistic appraisals of both those things, it'll be relatively easy to move forward. And we can't fret about all the stuff in the middle. You know, it's out of our control. And if it's not the worst thing that can happen, it's probably within our realm to handle. I'm fascinated by that. I've never heard of defensive pessimism, but I'm going to say it five times tomorrow and today, of course, too, just to singe it into my brain and make sure I'm getting that concept correct. That's genius. I And I heard something that to me reflected your army experience was multiple courses of action. How did the military and your military leadership experiences help you in this business environment, coach and develop? I, I'd love to hear for you talking about, first and foremost, how your army background shaped your perspective on success, failure, leadership, and then more importantly, how has that shaped the way that you've coached, guided people in business? Well, you know, <clears throat> the army for me was a very heavy dose of practical operational experience. There was really no theory to it. I mean, I, I studied strategy and, and those sorts of things and war planning, but it was highly pragmatic. And in, in pragmatic operations, things don't always go the way you want to. Mm -hmm. You know, things run off track. People make mistakes. Um, and so there, it was a it was a constant uh, experience of trying to deal with the reality of the situation, and that's an important emotional intelligence uh, learned behavior. There's actually an, an emotional intelligence subscale on the EQI called reality testing, and as it turns turns out, some people's emotions do not let them engage in. A, an honest appraisal of reality. What's the real probability we could succeed? Instead, they're, they're pent up in emotions and they're catastrophizing and they're, you know, they're doing other kinds of things. But I think when I was in the military, I got really good at reality testing because in an operational environment, if you kid yourself, you know, if you allow yourself to believe things that aren't in touch with reality, somebody's getting hurt. And, uh, and, and so it, it became really important to do that. The other thing that happened uh, to me repeatedly in the military was that 
I was the person in charge when things went wrong. And some sometimes, you know, it was clearly my fault. Other times I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I was able to watch my leaders cope with the fact that I failed at something. And over time, I began to learn why I was able to do that and not get fired. You know, why I was able to do that. Mm -hmm. And it made more sense for me to be retained in my role than to be swapped out. And those decisions that were made by my bosses were not made because they were nice guys or because they wanted, you know, they wanted to protect me. It was made in the context of what's the best thing for the organization right now? Mm -hmm. You know, is it best to decapitate the leadership or is it best to let them fix the problem and move on? And, you know, I became aware of the really complex nature of those decisions. And a lot of business people are not well versed in who to fire and who to retain. You know, they recognize the failure, they recognize the problem, but but what are the what are the best rules? You know, what are the what are the things that people need to consider before they retain or fire an employee who's who's failed at something? And there are a number of nuances to it, but what it boils down to is you don't focus on the employee, you focus on the organization and what's best for it. And you appraise the employee, you know, based on both the circumstances they were in and their individual disposition. You know, who, who are they? What are they? And about the only time that I've seen people routinely fired uh, was when they made mistakes where the basis of those mistakes was an ethical violation. So as long yeah. as people's hearts were in the right place, they generally survived. Yeah, fascinating experience. And I want to go back to those, you know, reality testing experience. And that's, I think the beauty of the, the military, and I'm thinking back to my Marine Corps experience is I, we were always exercise, exercising, it wasn't necessarily physical exercising, though there was a lot of that, but there's always a lot of call it role-playing <laughs> or like real-time training and preparing for opportunities where you could make mistakes in a safe environment. And then again, you, you have challenging environments too, that you make mistakes and you are accountable and you learn their lessons for it. But I was thinking about those two emotions of shame and guilt that can sometimes too chill someone in their learning journey, that feeling of, you know, shame, embarrassment, and then guilt about a poor decision. Can you talk a little bit about those two life companions? I can, I can. And they're, they're really important in leadership. So first of all, to, to understand the difference between the two, guilt is a gift you give yourself. Guilt is when you feel that you've let yourself down or let someone else down and you feel bad about it internally. Shame is when there's negativity being forced on you from the outside. Other people shame you. And so it's important to try to build in an organization or in your own leadership execution, a healthy appreciation for guilt 
So guilt is holding yourself accountable. That's a good thing. And, and higher levels of guilt are actually associated with better leadership. Can you say that and, again? Higher levels of guilt are associated with better leadership. Better leadership. Yes. And that's crazy. They connect to a concept that's in the big five personality mm-hmm. uh, inventory called conscientiousness. So if you're being conscientious and you're screwing things up, it's, it's normal and appropriate to feel guilty about that and to try to do better. And that's what we want leaders to do. Shame cultures are famous for bad leadership and for bad performance. When an organization turns on itself and shames people internal to the organization, all kinds of bad things happen. Probably the worst of which is an inability to deal with failure or to talk about failure. So things get swept under the rug in shame cultures. You know, people are unwilling to accept responsibility in shame cultures. And so shame is a highly negative emotion that's associated with worse leadership. Guilt is part of what drives conscientious leaders. And you mentioned it, the big five. Can you talk about these five, I'll call them leadership traits, but I'd love to hear you describe them and how you came into these big five as you talk about them in your work. Well, you know, I'm a social psychologist. Mm-hmm. And so I've taken personality courses. I've taught personality courses. And, you know, one of the most interesting as- associations of personality traits is called the big five. And they are associated uh, with, you know, the description of a person's personality. And most of them have a lot to do with leadership. So, there are things like extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and openness to experience. And the thing to understand about personality traits is that they are enduring. The purpose of measuring a, a personality trait is to find an enduring quality in a person. That's, it's not going to change very much over time. So in the context of leadership or leader development, if you measure personality, you're probably not going to change it in your client. What you can hope for is the ability to have your client understand what their enduring traits are. And often those traits are given to employees of the leader as well so that they know what the boss is made of, what they're, what, what they're composed of. I don't use personality traits in, in my work, in my coaching. I use uh, emotional intelligence assessments. And the reason that I do that is that emotional intelligence scores on, on subscales and so forth are malleable. They are not enduring. They can change in a matter of weeks or months if you work on them. And so to me, it's more important to be discussing things with my clients that I can change in them rather than getting them associated with the traits that may or may not be limiting them. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And I love the concept of 
EQ, EQ too, and from a awareness and self-management perspective and going back to our conversation as well. Like, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, but going back to our conversation with where our audience sits right now and helping them think about the risks that they're experiencing or that they want to take for themselves. Can you talk about something that they can actually manage? And I believe you, you brought this up in a speech you gave at the, the cadets about where we learned about our relationship with fear and that being a learned trait. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, fears, fear and our reaction to fear is, is something that we learn over time. Uh, and we have expectations of how we're going to react when we see something that's, that's perceived as threatening to us. And, um, you know, the two emotions that are triggered the, the most when, when we are threatened are anger or fear, those two emotions. And they occur uh, deep in our brain in a, in a well-known part of it called the amygdala. And when we turn inward, when we allow ourselves to take that deep breath and we're, we're afraid, that amygdala is activated. But I've taught many, many people, in, including hundreds of skydivers when I was an instructor in that sport, that if you focus outward, out of yourself on a task, and your emphasis is, is on that task externally, you will not feel those emotions of fear or anger. And consequently, the ability to do that the ability to immediately focus outward intensely is, is how we take care of fear. If you ask someone, oh, you know, uh, you need to stop being fearful, stop, stop your emotions, they turn inward and it makes it worse. Mm -hmm. But if you tell them, look, you know, you're uncomfortable because you're not focused. You're not focused on what you need to do. You need to focus on the task, not on yourself then anybody, and I mean anybody, can do things that appear to be courageous. And they're doing them because they're focused outward and not internally in sort of a selfish way. Um, I don't, did that cover what you that heard me did. say earlier? That, that absolutely did. And I think that goes back to the idea of it being a learned behavior. And I know when Courtney and I reached out to you to pick your brain prior to writing Bet on You, you also shared with us, which was great because you, again, have a PhD and you're a social psychologist. So you know the research on this. So this isn't, you know, Uncle Tom's skill set that he cooked up in his you know, backyard barn. <laughs> this is research-based guidance. And you shared also this enlightening research around the fact that, you know, a lot of the things that we're afraid of, we learn to be afraid of from our parents and particularly our mom. So if you want to assess your relationship with your desirability to take risk, assess your relationship with how you learned about risk from these two, perhaps, you know, two influential people in your life too. Like that was very enlightening and it certainly made its way into the book, Bet on You. Yeah. You know, um, if you study fear of failure, formally study it, what you find is that the origins of that are from parents and primarily from mothers in traditional families. And, um, 
you know, it has to do with how you're treated when you fail at something. And it's a, it's, it's a tremendous challenge to parents, you know, because, and I, you know, I've raised two daughters and, you know, I always wanted to correct them properly. And I always wanted them to do better when they failed at something. But I also had to be very careful that I didn't turn them into people who would cower, you know, at any kind of a risk or, or that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those nearly impossible challenges of being a parent that, uh, that we have to, to, to teach our kids to not want to fail and to try harder the next time, but not damage them, you know, not put into them this risk aversion that can hold them back from being whatever they want to be in their future lives. As you're saying that, and you're talking about your two daughters, I was thinking about my two sons. They're saying, oh my gosh, mom, not another motivational speech. Please, we don't need this right now. We don't want to know the research. We don't care. Did you ever get that from your daughters? <laughs> yeah, you know, I. it's funny. Um, I, I did. But, but when I got hammered by my daughters the most mm -hmm. was... And, and it was somewhat deliberate on my part. But when I would make a mistake, I always shared that with them. I always made sure that they understood that I did something wrong, you know, that mm -hmm. their dad was not some perfect person, you know, that, that never makes mistakes. And especially when they were younger, they'd become absolutely gleeful at, at knowing that I made a mistake because it made them, it made it okay for them to be mistakes. And, uh, you know, now one of them's a prosecuting attorney and the other is a, is a behavioral therapist and, um, and special education teacher. And they both have advanced degrees and they've both taken some risks in their careers and in their lives. And, you know, it, it's, it's turned out well, they're very strong people, mm -hmm. uh, very strong. And I think part of that was because every time dad made a mistake, I made sure they knew about it. Parenting guidance, leadership guidance, and risk-taking guidance, friends, all today in this session of Bet On You podcast. Tom, how can people stay connected to you? Because I do know you do post a lot on LinkedIn, but how can people find out more about your work? You even have a book, In Extremist Leadership. How can people stay engaged with you? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I have a website, tomkolditz.com, which I don't do much with, honestly. Uh, I did publish a second book, uh, called Leadership Reckoning. Can higher education develop the leaders we need? And the book starts out pointing out uh, the reality that higher education is terrible at developing leaders, at developing their students as leaders. And there are a number of reasons for that, and I go over them all. And then I talk about how we can fix that. Um, so, you know, that has been uh, for about the past seven years, that's what I've been working on is leader development in higher education. I helped pull together an agreement with the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching to have a classification for uh, leadership education and development called Leadership for Public Purpose. And now all 5,200 colleges and universities in the United States can apply for that classification through the American Council on Education, ACE. And my intention in doing that was to transform the way leaders are developed across higher education broadly. 
I cannot think of a better second, third act of service for you <laughs> than doing that. So amazing and impressive on that. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for agreeing to be on the podcast today. We really appreciated the guidance that you have. I took tons of notes. I'm sure our audience did too. And best of luck to you with this noble, inspiring mission. Well, it's a delight to see you again. And I appreciate you bringing me on the podcast and best of luck going forward. Thank you so much. Did I let you down? I don't think so. Tom Kolditz is incredible. I mean, if he put on a five-day course and shared with us everything he knew, first off, I don't think it would be enough time, but I know I would gain so much growth and momentum from that experience. Five days, Tom, you got to do it. Five-day Tom Kolditz course. Let's go. But I want to talk to you about the three things I picked up from this conversation. And the most, one of the most important ones was that there are traits that we have that are enduring and there are traits that are malleable. We should always be respectful and aware of the traits that are enduring, but those that we can change, especially those that are holding us back, we can change and move forward and grow and develop that we need to be really clear about what those skills are so we can go out and do the things that we were born, that we were meant to do. The second thing that I heard, and you're going to hear me say this a lot now, is this concept of defensive pessimism. I love that. Having multiple courses of action, thinking best case, thinking realistic worst case, so not trying to catastrophize, like realistic worst case, and just really understanding the range of opportunities that you can experience as you move forth. So again, respecting the opportunity that you're trying to get into. The third is that you need to own your mistakes, that ultimate message of accountability. The relief you give people when you can go in and say, you know what, I screwed up. I made a mistake. I own it. There's vulnerability. There's humility. But look what it does. It creates a safe space for everybody else to just admit something that we all know, that we're human. I am so excited to bring to you episodes of the Bet On You podcast. Please go to AngieConnect.com and you can find a host of other ways that we can stay engaged, whether it's on social media, whether it's through some of the other programs that I offer for free. I don't spam you, my blog, my newsletter, certain actions that we can all take together because I tell you, I'm on this journey with you. I want to grow. I want to develop. I want to continue to bet on myself and I want you to bet on you too. Have a great rest of your day. <laughs>